So one of the joys, um, one of the joys that we have as being pastors and elders um, here at our church is we're able to hear various stories from in particular from uh, individual church members or members of our faith family. For example, uh, whenever you go on a hospital visit, typically you know pre-COVID was was really easy. You go on a hospital visit, and uh, and you're visiting with individual in the uh, room. So you have just a few minutes where you have to kind of fill. Uh, fill the time, right? Uh, you don't want to make the first mistake uh, I made whenever I went on my very first hospital visit. I was interning at a church, and the student pastor said, hey, why don't you take lead on this one? I said, okay, let's do it. So I walk in, and you typically start the small talk with asking someone, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? To kind of open up conversation, right? 18 years old or 19 years old, I looked at this lady. I said, hey, what's, what's going on? And she looked at me. She said, I'm dying. <laughs> All right. Um... So let's pray, right? Like, I didn't know what to say. But, but typically, there's not the abruptness of that conversation. So you sit down. You get to enjoy conversation. Uh, for example, I know that there have been several members that we visit with where you just sit down and you get to talk and you get to hear various stories from them growing up or stories about their family, stories about how, uh, how uh, God brought them to saving faith. All of those are stories that are fun to hear. I also personally love to hear the stories of, uh, of how families or individuals have, have become part of our faith family. What was the journey? How did you get here? But as I mentioned, uh, we, get to hear, uh, we get to hear stories. Uh, individuals share their testimony and tell us how, uh, how God brought them to saving faith. That's also something we have a part of our membership, uh, our membership process as well as if someone is, is, uh, is going through baptism, as we'll see here as we close out today's service, two individuals were going to share their testimony, how God brought them to saving faith. You see, we celebrate that God has done, or what God has done, because it is absolutely nothing that the individual brings to, uh, uh, nothing that the individual brings that gets them to saving faith, but it's the kindness and the, uh, the goodness of God that has brought them to that point. As I mentioned, we'll be closing out our service this morning with two baptisms, where we get to celebrate hearing the, uh, the two individuals' testimonies. You see, a few weeks back, Pastor John, he mentioned, uh, he, he so masterfully uh, explained what a Christian testimony is. You see, a testimony, a Christian testimony reveals life before Christ, how God brought one to saving faith, and then what, the, what, what that individual's life looks like after this encounter with Jesus. This morning, as we continue our series, Unfinished Business, we're going to begin, our passage we're going to cover this morning is going to be the end of chapter 21 and most of chapter 22. And in this passage, we will hear, we will read Paul giving the testimony of how Christ changed everything. You see, just like through Paul's testimony, God is able to use our testimony to remind us and to remind others of his goodness, as well as instruct us as new creations for the mission that he has given us. In order for us to jump into the very end of chapter 21, it's vital that, uh, so if you have your Bible, start flipping over to that area, but it's vital that we give a little bit of background on uh, this particular portion of scripture. You see the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem, and uh, um, there's a lot of, of, uh, of Jewish individuals that are upset with him. Uh, they're rather upset because of a previous encounter that they have had with, uh, with Paul, and they are... Uh, they're to the point that there's a riot at the temple, which brings us to our portion of Scripture this morning. So we will begin in Acts chapter 21, uh, verse 37, and the word of the Lord reads this way. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarshish of Silica, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. You see, in order for us to really understand what we're going to cover this morning, we have to look at the historical context of what's happening at this point. You see, at this point in Acts, we, we've read, so we're, we're journeying through the book of Acts, which has brought us to this point. We see that the followers of the way in which they were, uh, which, in which they were referred to, they were a minor sect of Judaism. And this, is a, this, is a, this means that they were not the center of attention in the Roman Empire. In fact, during the first century, only the Jews and the Christians understood the massive differences between the way and between the way and Judaism. So everyone else just kind of lumped them all in together. So the Roman Tribune did not know who Paul is at this point in time. We know this because the Roman commander, Claudius uh, Lysias, mistook the Apostle Paul for an infamous uh, Jewish rebel uh, from Egypt that had led 4,000 terrorists. You see, this terrorist group was eliminated by the Roman Empire, yet the terrorist leader had escaped, and, uh, and it was initially suspected that the Apostle Paul was that man. You see, I think it's safe to assume if there's a riot occurring at the, uh, at the temple that the tensions are high at this point. You see, everyone is on guard, and, uh, and this, uh, this Roman commander, he believes that he has captured this fugitive that they have been long after, that is why the tribune was surprised to learn that, uh, that Paul speaks Greek. Upon realizing that, uh, realizing that there was more to Paul than meets the eye, they allow him to speak, which is what we pick up in verse 40. And when he, when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in, in Seleca, and brought up in, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamil, according to the strict manner of the law for our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and binding them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. We see that once Paul has received permission... For, to address the crowd, he immediately gets their attention by motioning uh, to, uh, to, uh, to them. Hey, I'm about to talk. And then he addresses them in a very respectful manner. He's, uh, he's very respectful while addressing this crowd. He refers to them as brothers and fathers, which showed respect to, the, uh, to them and to their heritage. This, is also, this also helped Paul gain the attention of the crowd as he, began, as he begins to unpack his testimony. We see what Paul's life was like before his encounter with Christ. The aspect of Paul, of Paul's previous life was that, uh, or the aspect of Paul's previous life that we either forget or we overlook is that while he was a terrorist, a terrorist that was persecuting the members that belonged to the way, he was persecuting members of the way in the name of God. 
which brings us to our first point this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil this for you because I know we have a lot of engineers out there. There's going to be four points this morning. So whenever we get to point three, I know, Dave, I'm sorry. Whenever we get to point three, don't zip it up because we're not done. But uh, our first point this morning is with, without being fueled, or I'm sorry, with, without being fueled by Christ's gospel, our most righteous works are dead. You see, Paul's approach, as we know, was wrong. He believed he was working towards a very important task, a very God-honoring task. His approach to ministry and his approach to God was, to be blunt, was very, very wrong. He felt he was honoring God by eliminating the way. But he would soon realize that you don't honor God by taking the focus off of his son. As crazy as it sounds, this is something that is still happening in present day. While there's not many, many individuals that we know that are going out and claiming to kill in the name of God, there are many people that are striving to earn their righteousness by what they do and by what they bring to the table. As a staff, we went through a book a few years back called Christless Christianity, Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. And Horton shared of a time that a Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse, was answering a perplexing question during his weekly nationwide broadcast on CBS. Barnhouse answered the question, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? And it was really interesting because Horton writes of Barnhouse's um, answer. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, which is where Barnhouse was located, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Children would say yes, sir, and yes, and no, ma'am. And the children and the churches, I'm sorry, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You see, we often become distracted from Christ. Our attention turns away from the fact that Jesus is the only hope for us sinners. We distract ourselves from Christ and put our attention on the factors that we can control. Whenever you look at salvation, it doesn't make sense for us because there's no way that we're able to earn it. So we put our attention on the factors that we can control. We take the focus off the beauty of the gospel and we put it on ourselves. We put it on the things that we are able to control. We put the focus on uh, what we can do to earn our salvation or how we can better please God. Most of the ways that we, that we do this, we're actually doing things that are really good, things that we should be doing, yet we do it with the wrong mindset. These misconceptions, um, these misconceptions start off with the misconception of being a good person. Hey, do you know who Jesus is? I'm a good person. I'm a good person, and that's what it takes to get to heaven. I think I read a study this week. This isn't in my notes, so bear with me, but... Uh, um, the study, uh, I think Lifeway had conducted a study, 60% of uh, born-again born believers, we'll put that in air quote, believe that Jesus isn't the only way to get to heaven. That's, that, is, that is startling. You see, we believe that if we're a good person, then that cuts it. We also believe another misconception we have is that our attendance, if we show up, then we're good. You see, I tell our students very often that uh, whenever you're signing up and registering for college classes, it's always nice to have the attendance policy. If you're there, you're going to pass, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't want to admit it, that's fine. But we passed many classes because you just showed up. Salvation doesn't work that way. Attendance in church isn't, isn't if you show up, then everything's okay. 
Another one misconception we have is if we just read our Bible, we read our Bible every single day. Once again, not a bad thing, but if we're doing it with the mindset that we're going to please God even more, then that's whenever it becomes a misconception. You see, it's very easy for us to be zealous for God and still not love Jesus. We can be zealous for God and still put our salvation on our shoulders based on what we do. You see, a relationship with Jesus is not about what you have done or what I have done, but it's about what's been done for us. As we continue this passage, we see Paul gets to the meat of his testimony. Verse 6 is where we'll pick up. As I was on the way, on my way, and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. You see, this is the portion of Paul's testimony that we see that uh, we see his encounter with Christ. We see that the salvation has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. We see that salvation is not a decision that we make, but it is graciously provided by God. You see, there's nothing that Paul did to earn salvation from the Father, yet God so graciously provided salvation for him. You see, in Paul's conversion, salvation was not predicated on Paul asking Jesus into his heart. It's not predicated on, on Paul saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. Christ had an encounter with Paul, and it changed everything. Which brings us to our second point this morning. An encounter with the sovereign, transforming grace of Jesus can transform even the most zealously sinful of individuals. You see, it's interesting because Paul wasn't looking for conversion at this point. You see, it's this, this truth should offer us, if we are resting in Christ, so much encouragement. Displayed in this passage in the retelling of Paul's testimony, is, it, it shows, it reveals the true power of the gospel. Tony Morita writes, The light blinding Paul around noon implies it outshone the sun at its strongest time. Paul fell to the ground and heard Jesus speaking to him. Paul includes in his defense speech that it was Jesus of Nazareth who confronted him. Before the Jewish audience, Paul wanted to be clear about Jesus' identity. Jesus informed Paul that he had not only been persecuting the church, but also the Lord himself with his eagerness to stamp out Christianity. This truth highlights the special relationship between Christ and and the church. You see, on his journey to Damascus, Paul did not uh, get what he deserved. Jesus did not execute him on the spot on this road to Damascus. Instead, through his transforming grace, Jesus converted an enemy of God, a terrorist, an individual that was anti-Jesus looking to eliminate the early church. And he turned him into an evangelist. He turned him into the man that's going to, uh, that's going to provide for us texts that we're going to study as a church. He had uh, an individual that had so much to do with the launch of the church and how we still worship and study to this day. It shows us what God is able to do, how powerful 
God is. And it's good news for us because, uh, because there's no way that we're able to share or that we, we prevent sharing the gospel with an individual because they're just too bad for God. You see, rather than being consumed, rather than being consumed by the Holy God for all the ways that he had persecuted Christ, Paul was commissioned on the road to Damascus, which is where we continue our passage. In verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of all well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the voice, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone that you have ever uh, for everyone of what you have seen and heard, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in, uh, that in one synagogue after another, I am, uh, I am prison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, and I will send, your, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You see, through Paul's commissioning, Luke gives us insight, the author gives us the insight on uh, the source of man's righteousness, which brings us to our third point. The only way to gain righteousness is through the righteous one, Jesus, who gives us a new purpose. If God brings you to saving faith, he gives you a new purpose, which is to go and tell others. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, in Paul's commission, there are a few connections to the Old Testament. So we're going to look back to verse 14 uh, in Acts chapter 22. And he said, The God of your fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the voice from, and to hear a voice from his mouth. If we flip over to uh, Isaiah 53, this is the one that he's referring to. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 say, But he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, all we, like, uh, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we skip down to verse 11. We see out of the angst of his soul, out of the, out of the anguish of his soul, we, uh, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, Isaiah is speaking of the righteous one as the, obedience, as the obedient servant who was wounded for the transgressions for our sins. You see, the only way for a person to be righteous, or the only way for a, purchase, a person to gain righteousness is not through the religious effort on our behalf, but rather through the righteous one whom Isaiah was referring to. 
You see, the rest of Paul's life and the rest of Paul's ministry would be, devout, would be devoted to proclaiming this truth. On this particular day, the crowd, they were furious with the apostle. We have seen and will see, uh, see during other occasions in Acts people being brought to saving faith. And we also, just like we see with Paul, uh, we are not responsible for the results of that happening when we share the gospel with someone. We are simply responsible to just share it. Now, this is going to hurt because we are an engineer-driven church. There is no evangelism plan that we can learn that will uh, bring to life a dead heart. There is no matter in which that we can put together a process that will take a dead heart and make it a, uh, and, and make it a live heart. There's no way that we're able to do that. There's no way that we're able to practice and study in order. There's no a series of verses that we can go through in order to make that happen. There is no magic formula to share the gospel effectively enough that guarantees conversion. We must remember that no one is beyond the reach of God's converting grace. You see, I'll tell you this, uh, over the years, I've done student ministry for a lot longer than I like to admit, and there have been numerous times uh, um, that I've been told, so, you know, a, a, a student might mention a friend of theirs from school, or I'll, I'll meet them at a ball game some, of some sort. Anyways, a connection is made, and I'll, and I'll talk to the student afterwards, say, hey, why don't you invite so-and-so to church? Why don't you invite them to our back-to-school batch? Why don't you invite them to our Wednesday night? Why don't you invite them to Sunday morning with us? And there have been numerous times where the response I would receive would be, uh, oh, there's, there's no way they would come to church. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to have anything to do with God. Or you get the, or you get the response of, oh, <laughs> they are not church people. Or you get the response, they are too messed up for church. You see, while many of us here this morning would not vocally express the limitation of God's power, this is a good reminder that God, through his transforming grace, can convert a terrorist into one of the most influential men in the world for the sake of the gospel. We see that with Paul, we see, uh, once again, we're reminded and, we're, and, and, and maybe even revealed how powerful God is through Paul's testimony. We also see that he, was, uh, that he was given a new vision, a new mission. Rather than extinguishing the way, Paul became a messenger of the gospel, which is the same calling for anyone that is resting in the gospel. You see, as we close out our uh, passage this morning, uh, we see the, tribe, uh, the, the tribune, and, and uh, they've, they've listened, they've heard enough. So we see their response in verse 22. Up to this uh, word... They listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. That's a pretty, that's a pretty contentious uh, conversation, right? I mean, I've left some, some, some meetings at a church, and I'm like, man, they, they're not happy. But I've never gone to the car thinking that they, someone said, hey, he needs to die. He's He's done. So this shows us how serious, how livid the tribune is. So they say this guy shouldn't be allowed to live, verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. That is not a fun way to spend an afternoon. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. 
verse 25. But when they had stretched out or stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And in verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you, uh, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. The tribune came and said, tell me, you are, Roman, tell me are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. For those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was, so afraid, uh, was also, also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him. Which brings us to our last point tonight, or this morning. I'm used to Wednesday nights, by the way. So, uh, brings us to our last point this morning. The providence of God will never be overcome by man. You see, after a brief moment of calmness, we have now seen the riot has resumed. The crowd is extremely angry. They are wanting to kill Paul. Both their words and actions express an outrage at Paul. And the riot becomes so eventful that Paul will never be able to address the accusation that he had defiled the temple. Howard Marshall writes, The real issue is not whether Paul defiled the temple, but whether Judaism uh, was prepared to tolerate Christianity. And it's safe to say that they're not. You see, Paul is enduring the escalating trials. He is facing a tumultuous crowd, and, uh, and they are ready to rip him to shreds. But this Roman commander that we talked about earlier, that we started off our passage talking about, he takes him away for examination, which seemed to include the apostle being uh, flogged, which is an extremely violent form of torture. Paul reacts by revealing that he's a Roman citizen, which means that he cannot be punished without going to trial. You see, before we examine Paul's reaction, we have to look at this Roman commander, Lysias. We see that there are several attempts for this commander to try to persecute, uh, to try to persecute Paul. And uh, we, we read and we, we see about this, his first attempt in, at the end of chapter 21, whenever he took Paul to the barracks uh, to question him. The second attempt, we read about in verse 24, where they attempt to flog, which is, once again, deemed unlawful because of Paul's Roman citizenship. You have to imagine that this Roman commander, Lysias, he is, he is probably extremely frustrated because there's nothing that he is able to, uh, to get away with, to get anywhere close to, uh, to punishing Paul as he wishes. So as we move on to Paul, Paul is on trial. He, in response, Paul's gesture of love, uh, in response to Paul, uh, Paul's gestures in love, the crowd has rejected him, which honestly shares very similarly how they rejected Christ. And with the commander not being able to get Paul uh, as he so desires, we look ahead to see why. It was God protecting Paul the whole time. In verse, we're actually going to, Pastor John's not here, so we're going to skip to 23, chapter 23, for just for one verse. So don't tell him. And Pastor John, if you're watching, I love you. But we're going to verse 11 here. Verse 11 in chapter 23 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
You see, God was with Paul, plain and simple. There was no one regardless of how powerful, uh, there's no one regardless of how powerful a government leader is who will ever be able to compare to the perfect almighty God. Paul's calmness and Paul's confidence are found in knowing that the providence of God is unshakable and unchangeable. You see, this morning as we close, for those that are not resting in Christ, I pray that you will find encouragement, know, encouragement in knowing that God's power in redemption is considerably more powerful than your sin. For those that have been brought to saving faith, we have a new calling in life. We're called to share the gospel with others, knowing that it doesn't uh, depend on us if someone is brought to saving faith. That's not our job. We are simply told just to go and share. I pray that Paul's testimony encourages us to realize how truly powerful, as best as we can, understand how powerful God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we are so grateful for you. Grateful for how powerful you are, God. We're grateful for your providence. God, we thank you so much for reminding us through your word how you are far more powerful in redemption than our sin. God, you are far more powerful that there is no one on the face of this earth that is so messed up that, um, that your converting, transforming grace cannot penetrate. God, I pray for encouragement for our faith family, realizing that there is no formula in sharing the gospel that's going to guarantee conversion. That's not up to us. We are simply just told to go and share. God, for those that are in this room this morning that are not resting in the finished work of Christ, my prayer is that they'll find one of our elders or our pastors at the end and say, I want to hear more about who Jesus is. God, for those that are resting in what Jesus has done, may we be encouraged to go and share with others about the beautiful grace that you have. God, we love you so much. We're thankful for letting us be here this morning to worship you corporately. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.